Father, I thank you that you are here in our midst as we gather to hear your word. Father, as we sing, our soul hang on every word that you say. Father, this is your word. This is truth. Truth sets us free. Truth is what directs us. Truth leads us to answers, and that answer is only in you, Jesus. And so we welcome your truth this morning, and may it only be your truth that is heard today, God. And I pray, let us, let our very souls hang on to this truth that we would be transformed in your presence this morning. Speak that truth today, God. Let your spirit speak very personally to our hearts this morning. And we eagerly expect that your word will not return empty, but will accomplish the very purpose for which you send it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, Scripture says a thousand will fall at your side and 10,000 at your right hand, but it will not come near you. That's from Psalm 91, and I know many pastors are preaching from Psalm 91. I am not doing that this morning, but we're going to continue in Mark. I want to read, though, something to you here. It says, because he loves me, says the Lord, I will rescue him. I will protect him, for he acknowledges my name. He will call upon me. I will answer him. I will be with him in trouble. I will deliver him and honor him. With long life will I satisfy him and show him my salvation. That's how Psalm 91 ends. And I just want to encourage you. uh, We are in a very unusual day today in which this virus has, in a sense, become viral and is spread throughout the world and has impacted probably every major city in this world. As I know in America, there are certain restrictions. Uh, Governor DeSantis has outlawed groups of 10 on beaches and restaurants closing uh, for in-store dining and these types of things. And it's easy for us to function in two different extremes. On the one hand, we can just say, ah, you know what, Psalm 91, God's going to protect me. I don't need to be concerned about this. And I would challenge you that that would be a wrong way to, to, to view this pandemic. On the other hand, we could get so filled with fear, and I think Psalm 91 speaks to that as well, that God is challenging us not to be filled with fear. So with that, I want to give a little illustration for you this morning, not to raise concerns. It is only for illustrative purposes only, okay? I want you to imagine that you just happen to contract the coronavirus. Um, Because of health reasons, you don't walk through this real well, health-wise. You don't walk through this real well. You take your temperature, and you realize that your temperature reaches over 106, bordering 107. And you say, you know what? I got to go to the hospital. And so the doctor says, hey, you know what, Mike? We have something. It's an injection. And it is the antidote for what your problem is. It is an antidote for the coronavirus. And I look at that and I realize that my condition is getting worse and worse, and I am bordering on my deathbed. And the doctor says, this is the only answer. This syringe is filled with an antidote for this coronavirus. And I look at it, and since I hate needles, I say no, and I reject 
the antidote. And the doctor says, but Mike, you don't realize the seriousness of your situation. And I interrupt him and say, no, 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 no. I think I do. You're about to stick me with this needle, and I hate needles. And so consequently, I reject the very thing that would save my life. And in return, I say to the doctor, you know what? I took my own temperature. This is a me thermometer, by the way. And, I, and it starts at 130, okay? And I look at it and I say, you know what? I'm taking my temperature and it's not even registering here. And so I'm going to say, I don't even think I have much of a temperature. But just in case I do, I have got this. It's children's acetaminophen. And this is going to take care of all of my symptoms. And as a result, I'm going to be just fine. And hey, look at this syringe. This is, uh, I love this one a whole lot more, right? It only goes in your mouth and not under the skin. I think I have the answer right here, right here. So doctor, thank you anyway. Now, obviously I'm saying this tongue in cheek, but the truth is church, we live in a world in which there is brokenness. I'm going to call it an infection of sin. It has broken us. And the result is that we are offered through the truth of God's word, we're offered an antidote, we're offered an answer to this dilemma, to this spiritual pandemic that we encounter. I want to tell you, uh, there, I have a, a friend of mine at a place where I, I do business, and he is an atheist. And we've had some good dialogue back and forth, and I just shared a little booklet with him. I'm hoping he can go home and read it. really addresses his situation short to the point, and in the end, it shares the gospel very concisely. He asked me this question. Here's his question. By the way, turn to Mark chapter 12, and I'm going to read it in just a moment. But here's his question that my atheist friend asks me. He says, why would a loving God allow this coronavirus pandemic, and why would he not step in to remedy it? That's a good question, isn't it? I mean, if God is so loving, why would, number one, he even allow this to happen? Why would it go worldwide? And secondly, what's he doing about it? Where's his answer? Where's his remedy? Where's his antidote? Do you see the, the validity of this question? I'm not going to share the answer that I gave him with you right now. But the truth is, church, we live in a day in which people are experiencing a spiritual pandemic in their brokenness, and Jesus says that he offers the answer to this. I believe God has a very good answer to my friend's question, but so far, the world is rejecting that answer. And it's medicating itself with, excuse me, children's acetaminophen. That is only going to mask the problem. It's only going to help with symptoms. It might bring the temperature down, but that's not the real problem. And the, and the world is looking everywhere, including atheists, to find answers. And if they can't find an answer, if they can't find a hope, they create one. This is existentialism. If there is no hope, I'm going to create a hope. And now, this is how my atheist friend views Christianity. Christianity, there's, there's no such thing as God, and you have just created this like children's acetaminophen. But the truth is, see, that's the antidote he's trying to use. We simply mask the problem, we treat 
with symptoms, and Jesus has this answer. So if you're there with me, let's begin in Mark chapter 12, starting with verse 1. He then began to speak to them in parables. A man planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a pit for the wine press, and built a watchtower. When he, then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. At harvest time, he sent a servant to the tenants to collect from them some of the fruit. And I want you to underline that phrase, some of the fruit. We're going to need to look at that phrase. What does that mean? What's the application of it? But verse 3, he goes on, but they seized him, beat him, and sent him away empty-handed. Underline that phrase too, empty-handed. Then he sent another servant to them. They struck this man on the head and treated him shamefully. He, he sent still another, and that one they killed. He sent many others. Some of them they beat, others they killed. He had one left to send, a son whom he loved. He sent him last of all, saying, they will respect my son. But the tenants said to one another, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him, and the inheritance will be ours. And I want you to underline that phrase, the inheritance will be ours. So they took him and killed him and threw him out of the vineyard. What then will the owner of the vineyard do? Will he will come and kill those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Haven't you read the scripture? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone, or better, the chief cornerstone. The Lord has done this, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Then he looked for a way to arrest him, because they knew he had spoken the parable against them, but they were afraid of the crowd. So they left him and went away. You know, it's, it's interesting how Mark weaves his stories together. They're not isolated by any means. One story leads into another for a very good reason. Now, <clears throat> last week we learned that Jesus, when he came into Jerusalem riding on a, a donkey, the, the, the foal of a donkey, <clears throat> that he came immediately <clears throat> not to Herod's palace or Pilate's praetorium, the hall of judgment. That's a political maneuver. Instead, he went to the temple. He went to the very center, and I'm going to suggest the very heart of Israel, the religious center, he went to the temple. Now, <clears throat> he saw what was going on there, and Mark tells us that he, he observed what was going on, and you get this feeling he really didn't like it, but he was going to address the problem the next day. So he leaves, and on his way back the next morning, from, he spent the night in Bethany, on his way back, he comes across a fig tree. Now, you remember the story. The fig tree that he was hoping would, would at least have some fruit. Now, the fruit there that he was looking for were not figs. The fruit that he was really looking for was what they commonly call taksh, and that is simply... <clears throat> A, a forebear of fruit, and it would, it would, it would, there'd probably be maybe a dozen on a tree, nothing prolific like the figs that would come several months later. But the problem, though, is if there's no chaksh, then consequently that was a sign that this tree would not produce fruit. And as a result, 
not finding the fruit, only finding leaves so that it looked good, but really was bearing no fruit, Jesus cursed him. He goes to the temple and he clears the temple. And in clearing the temple, he basically pronounces a judgment upon Jerusalem, upon Israel. Why? Because he uses the fig tree as a metaphor and Israel was not bearing fruit. He then gives his disciples, speaking to them very private, personally, two challenges. Number one, to have faith in God, and number two, to love others, especially forgiving them. So the very next story that Mark shows us, I didn't read this, they come to Jesus and they ask him this question, by what authority are you doing this? That is, by what authority did you come into our temple and some seem to act rather officially and clear it of business. And Jesus says, I'm going to answer that question if you answer me this question. John's ministry, John the Baptist's ministry. Was it from heaven? Was it of God or was it not? And the, 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 the Pharisees realized that they were cornered at this point because they were in a dilemma. And that is, if they say that John's ministry was from heaven and was truly from God, Jesus is going to say, then why didn't you listen to him? Why didn't you repent? Remember, John spoke to them and said, the ax is already laid at the root of the tree. Why? Because you have not produced fruit in keeping with repentance. And so John challenged them, and they did not like him. But they also realized that if they say that he is not of God, that his ministry was not from heaven, they would find themselves in another dilemma, and that is the people that were gathering around them that overheard this question Jesus asked them, they would be really upset with them. And so they took the middle road. We don't know. And so Jesus said, neither am I going to tell you. The issue here is the authority of Jesus. Who are you, Jesus, coming into our house and doing what you think is right, but we have allowed. You know, we're the officials. So moving into the parable Jesus gives, we're the tenants of the vineyard, and you have crossed a line. You are exercising authority that we personally don't believe that you possess. This is, in essence, what they are saying. So now Jesus shares this parable with them. Now understand that the vineyard that he's referring to here is the kingdom of God. Matthew goes a little bit more into detail in this parable, and Matthew quotes Jesus saying at the very end in chapter 21, verse 43, therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. Given to a people who will produce its fruit. That, that people that would produce its fruit would, yes, indeed, be Gentiles. But let's also understand it's going to be Jews that will believe that Jesus is the promised Messiah, that punishment that brought us peace, Isaiah 53, and on him, the iniquity of us all would be laid upon. So Jesus is now going to be offering the vineyard, the kingdom of God, to those that will actually bear fruit. So I want you to also see this theme that Mark is weaving because Jesus cleared the temple. Why? Because there's no fruit like the fig tree. And he curses the fig tree. And we, you may remember last week, 
in 70 AD, the Romans came, decimated Jerusalem. Thousands fled, seeking safety, most of which the Romans chased and killed them. Many were hung on crucifixes. Many were taken into slavery. Tens of thousands were taken into slavery. Many, many, many died. Read about that in Josephus. And so Jesus spoke of judgment, and God did it. So here we now see that Jesus is using this parable of a vineyard. He's going to make a point, and he says, and I'm going to walk you through this parable. The vineyard, as I've already stated, the vineyard is the kingdom of God. The kingdom of God was given to the Jews. And now notice what he says here. The, the owner, when he plants the vineyard, he builds a wall all around the vineyard. That, that's somewhat unusual for a vineyard. You usually want like a fence, but a fence doesn't do a great job of keeping people out, though it might do a good job of keeping animals out, but this is a wall. This is a wall. It's not just a fence. It's a wall, and he builds it around. And so we understand if we're now transitioning into, well, what does this wall mean? You see, the kingdom of God was given to Israel. And the sign of this covenant was circumcision. And specifically, whenever you have a physical sign, the physical sign points to something. And that something was spiritual circumcision. Read about this in Romans chapter 2, the very end. Circumcision of the heart, Colossians 2. Circumcision of the heart, in essence, is repentance. This is, though, this is what the, who are, are truly a part of this new covenant, this covenant, rather, in the Old Covenant, the Old Testament. And it was a sign of circumcision, physical circumcision that was given to them to demonstrate this. And so, this, in essence, it is repentance and true faith in God. That is the wall that God puts around the kingdom. And there's no different in the new covenant. The entrance into the vineyard, into the kingdom of God, still is by God's grace through faith. Faith in Jesus Christ. Not just a simple acknowledgement to the facts that the Pharisees did a phenomenal job with, but it is an embracing of this amazing God who in the display of his grace was about to have his son crucified on a cross as the sufficient payment for my sin and yours. That is the wall that is around this vineyard so what happens? The tenants, now understand, they are renting. They don't own the vineyard. They're farmers who are being paid to take care of this vineyard. And so they're taking care of the vineyard. And when harvest comes, the owner, who in this situation is God himself, the owner requests that the tenants, the farmers, show him, give him some of this fruit. This fruit, of course, is what God has produced. In Matthew, it doesn't say give some of the fruit. It says his fruit. It's the owner's fruit. It's the owner that has produced this. It's his vineyard. It's his fruit. 
You see, the Spirit of God, both in Old Covenant and New, is what was producing this fruit. It was God's grace through and through, from beginning to end. And it is God's fruit. And yet, those who were tending the vineyard, which in some, it would simply be Israel itself, but it would most specifically be the leaders, the spiritual leaders. And that's why this parable really hit home with these Pharisees, the spiritual leaders in Israel. And they knew, you find this out, they knew Jesus was speaking this parable against them. And so what we discover is in order to collect this fruit, which could be a display of God's grace in our lives, love, joy, peace, goodness, patience, kindness, humility, these fruit of the Spirit. But it would not just be the character that God is wanting to manifest in our lives, but it is also changed lives. It's salvations. It's people who, in essence, now taking it outside the metaphor of the vineyard, it's people who are coming into the kingdom by God's grace. This is the fruit that's being produced, and it's supposed to be good fruit. So when he comes and ask them to give a reckoning, an accounting for this, and give him some of the fruit, the tenants take that servant of the master and beat him. Some of them they killed. Some of them they just persecuted. Those servants would be the Old Testament prophets up to the, the John the, the Baptist. And so this is how Israel was treating them. What a shame Israel themselves were rejecting the very responsibility that God had given to them. Finally, it says that the master, the owner of the vineyard said, I know what I'm going to do. I have one more person that I can send, my son. Now, do you notice what the tenants call the son, the heir? This is the heir. This is the one that truly, when, when, when the master dies, everything's going to go to him. This is the one who's the real owner. If we kill him, this inheritance will be ours. Isn't that an odd thought? And it makes for a nice parable, but when you take it outside of that parable and you, you kind of unpack it a bit, what Jesus is really saying in this parable is that these tenants truly believed that by killing all of these prophets, they would become the owners, and, and eventually the son, they would become the owners of the vineyard. They would become the owners of the vineyard. So what they do is they kill the son, the heir of the kingdom. They killed him. Why would they do that? Now, I want you to listen. It says, so that they, so that the inheritance would be theirs. But in what way? Number one, they were only servants to the master. As tenants, they were simply serving the master. The second thing, as tenants, they would obey the master's laws and regulations. They were obligated to the master. And number three, therefore, they would be obligated 
to the master, to the owner. But what would happen if they were the owners? Now, follow me here. They would be the owners. They would be the master now, at least in their mind. They would be the owners. They would be the ones setting the laws, putting in the regulations. They would be the, the, those people. And then lastly, they would be accountable to no one. To no one. And we see that the religious leaders of Jesus' day, he, he, he calls them out. He calls them hypocrites. They created their own laws. They were hoping that by following these laws, many of which they had made up, the traditions of the elders, that they would inherit eternal life. Why? Because they were the masters now. And Jesus came and he says, you know what? There was something deeply wrong in this vineyard. I think that in our day, that the world wants to create their own laws. They want to be held accountable to no one except to maybe one another, but certainly not God. And if they want to believe in a God, even within the visible church, and I'm making a distinguishing mark between the visible church, which is basically anybody who goes to church, and the invisible church, that is those who truly believe in Jesus Christ. Because there are many who go to church in this world, and they are still dead in their sins. And many of you, your own personal testimony, you grew up in a Christian, I grew up in a Christian home. I heard the gospel over and over, and finally, at a point in my teenage years, my eyes were open, my heart was broken, and I began to see who I was and where I was in this world, and God needed to rescue me. And then I surrendered in faith to Jesus Christ. But see, I was my own boss. Up to that point, I was my own boss. I made up my own rules, my own regulations, and you know what? People do that today. They start hearing about hell. They don't like it. So what do they do? They erase hell and they create something very different. They, they, whatever they don't like in the Bible, they try to find a way in which it reads out differently. What they do in our world today, for, for example, now when we were in Holland visiting, and Europe would be a post-Christian uh, continent, basically meaning that they have at one point experienced the gospel, the transforming power of the gospel. But as generations move on, they become just like the tenants that we read about. They reject Jesus. They create their own religion, their own means of salvation. When we were riding in Holland, when we were riding with a, a cab owner to the airport, I just began to dialogue with him. He knew English well enough to be able to, to do that. And I, I was looking out and I said, you know, I, I see a lot of church buildings. He said, yeah, but church, the people don't use those for churches anymore. There's bars there. And, and they basically, since no one was going to those churches, they basically turned them into businesses or something else. And the conversation turned around to me asking him, and I, I got very personal with him. And 
he, he didn't seem too uncomfortable with that. And then I said, well, well, tell me, what do you believe about God and about Jesus Christ? And he said this. He says, you know what? You know, I, I was uh, raised in a Muslim home, um, but I was exposed to Christianity. And I basically believe that everybody is sincere, finding their own way to God, and that there's no one right religion, and all of them have elements of truth, and that we are all going to heaven. Just do your best. He took the walls of the vineyard, and he broke them down. Anybody can come in. Anybody is qualified. You're all going to heaven. You're all good. Now, what the gospel says is we are not all good. That's the bad news, see, is that we are all broken and we are all sinful. And this infection of sin has in, has impacted us, not just us, but church, truly the entire world, the universe has become broken because of what we have done. The coronavirus is in this world, maybe not because of your sin personally, but it is because of sin generally. We broke this world. And so as I began to, to talk with him, I, I was gracious with him, but I did tell him, I said, you know what, I, I, I shared my testimony and how I came to this realization of who Jesus truly was. And that Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. And, and I left him with a challenge that you know, Islam says Jesus is not God. Jesus did not die on the cross. Why? Because there was no sacrifice for sin necessary. But the gospel says the antidote for your sin sickness is Jesus Christ. It is the cross. It is the resurrection because we are broken. And apart from Jesus, we will remain broken. Now, in keeping with this parable, Jesus says, you know what? What will the master do when he comes back to his vineyard? What is he going to do with these tenants? This is what, I'll tell you what, this is what he's going to do. He's going to kill them. And he's going to give the vineyard to others. And as Matthew says, you heard me read this, to those who will actually produce its fruit. And so God took the kingdom and the kingdom responsibilities away from the Jews. Romans 11 says they were grafted out of the vine. And, and the Gentiles, that is not just Gentiles, but remember the, the first decade or more of the church was only Jews. It is those who believed in Jesus. They were the ones now grafted into this vine. And so this kingdom... This vineyard has been given to those who will produce its fruit. And then he says this. He says, you know what? And it's, it's a quote from Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, I believe. And it says, and he quotes it here, the stone that the builders rejected has become the chief cornerstone. You see, God sent his son to be the remedy for our sin sickness, and the world has rejected him, 
and they have torn down the walls, and they, in essence, have created their own version of truth. Church, you can't create your own version of truth. Because if you create your own version of truth, then it's going to be different from the truth, and anything different from the truth is a what? It's a lie. It's a deception. But we're okay with that. Because it sounds so good to me. Hell doesn't sound good. God's judgment, God's wrath, that doesn't sound good. I want a loving God who will not punish anybody. Well, I'm I'm tempted to pursue that, but that's not my purpose this morning. But we, in this world, we create our own truth. What is up with that? That's not truth. It's a lie. And so what Jesus is challenging them here is, You're rejecting the very chief cornerstone. You you see, the chief cornerstone, that's laid on the foundation. Everything is made square by that. The walls are square. The walls are fixed firmly on the foundation. Why? Because of the chief cornerstone. That is Jesus. He is the answer. He is the truth. He is what we align our lives with. He is the answer. He is the remedy. He is the antidote the antidote to this illness that the Bible calls sin. But can I challenge you? It is not just the world that tends to create their own truth and thereby reject Jesus, but those in the church can do this just as well. We read something. We're not sure we like it too much. Seems maybe a bit harsh. Or it calls me out, calls me out of these areas of sin that I find myself all too comfortable in. And I read the Bible and it says, "Uh uh-uh, Jesus is calling you to bear the fruit of the kingdom and we're too fascinated with our gourds. I mean, what are gourds for? Have you ever eaten a gourd? I tried one one time. Terrible. This is what we're producing. You know, I truly believe that God wants me happy. I'm not getting along with my wife. And I know the Bible kind of says he hates divorce, but I'm sure in my case, right, the church, the divorce rate is equal. Church, it's equal with the world. When I was 14, I stopped rejecting Jesus. Far be it from me to still want to produce my own vineyard, my own truth. And we humble ourselves. And we accept the remedy. We don't want to just simply come up with our own that will mask the problem just because it sounds easier. I hate needles under my skin. But you see, the truth will always get under your skin. The truth will always get right. It will hurt sometimes. It will lay you open. It will convict. It will show you the truth, and it will show you the real answer, not what you want to hear. So I think even within the church, we need to just say, hey, 
I want the truth. I want the reality. I want Jesus. Now, here is something that's interesting. If you were to go to Luke chapter 20, on this very same parable, in Luke, he says, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, but, or, and, he on whom it falls will be crushed. Broken or crushed. Now, (coughs) both of these, please don't be mistaken, both of these are judgments. Both of these are judgments. That if you continue to reject Jesus, just like these tenants, and you keep pushing the truth away, Rejecting Jesus as the answer, the remedy, the antidote, he says, you're going to be broken. And then he, he kind of amps, amps it up a bit, and he says, and if the stone falls on you, again, judgment, you will be crushed. And the Greek word there is crushed to powder. That type of severity. And you see, it was this that happened in 70 A.D. But here is something that's that's interesting. There are two words. One is broken. One is crushed. And this is what happens to us. Now, follow me here for a moment. In the very beginning of Jesus' ministry, Luke tells us that he went to Nazareth to preach the gospel, that he was the Messiah, that he was the anointed one, which is what Messiah or Christ means. And if you go there, you don't have to, I'll read it to you. He says this, he's quoting from Isaiah 61. He says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Now follow me, because he has anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed. I'm going to come back to that one. Release the oppressed and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, a jubilee in which captives were set free. Debts were completely canceled. This is the essence of this new kingdom in Christ, the kingdom of God. And so he uses this phrase to release the oppressed. Let me just read to you a more literal translation of that phrase. To send away in freedom, release. To send away in freedom, the broken, crushed ones. I want us to realize something Before I gave my heart to Christ, before you came to Christ, and up to that point you were rejecting Jesus, the anointed one, you were broken, you were crushed. You see, there's a brokenness that we attribute to a a cup when it just gets old, it's been banged around a bit, and and you reach for the handle to pick up your coffee, and the handle comes off. It's broken. Now, my wife would prefer, hey, let's just buy a new one. There's something inside of me that says, no, I want to try and fix it. I want to try and repair it. So I get out my glue, my, my um, super glue, it gel form, and, and I put it on both ends, and I stick it on there, and I got I to gotta wait for another day. So, no, my coffee doesn't get cold. Of course, I pour it into another cup. But I have now mended this. But what were to happen if in picking up that cup, and I'm starting to walk across my ceramic kitchen floor, and the handle broke off, and it fell to the floor, 
not only would I lose that precious cup of coffee, but the cup would be smashed to pieces, irreparable. And it is this kind of smashing that Jesus is referring to here. Now, they, they interpret it not physically broken, but spiritually broken. And so some may say uh, brokenhearted. Uh, my version says oppressed. That gets more at the emotional, psychological, spiritual dynamic involved in this broken crushedness, if you will. But church, the, the bottom line is we were all broken and crushed beyond repair. And now follow me here. This broken, crushed one that continues to reject Jesus will eventually either fall upon that stone or that stone will fall upon him and he will be pulverized to powder. Think about that for a minute. In my brokenness, Apart from Christ rejecting him, I am backing myself in my brokenness more and more to a point where Jesus says the end is complete brokenness. In your brokenness, you will be broken completely. And that was a warning that he gave to that generation. If you keep doing this, if you're like those builders who are rejecting this stone, do you not realize that this stone is the chief cornerstone? Without the chief cornerstone, there's no building. And if you try to build it and build it your way, no walls are going to be properly aligned. And they're going to be crooked. If you walk into my house, yeah, I won't talk about crooked walls. But the truth is, even in our own homes, we can have some of these crooked walls. But the the border walls, you know, they, see, those are my interior walls. Sometimes the builders didn't get it quite right, but at least they got the outside exact. And so my house hasn't fallen apart yet, praise God. But the truth is, in our brokenness, when we reject that chief cornerstone, we are only bringing more and more brokenness into our lives. Our own sin is devouring us. Jesus is the answer. He's the antidote, the remedy that we're rejecting. Well, what's going to happen to me on my deathbed if I reject the antidote? Church, I'm going to die. I'm going to die. And the world continues to move in this direction of rejecting the truth of Jesus, the heir to the throne of this kingdom. And consequently, in their brokenness, they're only being more and more broken until eventually they will be crushed to smithereens. But you see, the beauty of the gospel is that it's the good news. The beauty of the gospel is that Jesus truly does repair that which is broken beyond man's ability to fix or repair or glue together jesus god himself mends us i can remember one time i was uh in our homeschool room and i, I opened a filing cabinet upstairs in our homeschool room and i noticed on top of the cabinet there was a cup or at least it kind of looked like a cup 
it would never be able to have held water. So I figured someone broke this cup and they glued all like a hundred pieces back together, hoping that it would kind of at least stay together. But it was already moving, shifting, and it was about to fall apart. And so I made the foolish mistake of picking it up by the handle and the whole thing just crumbled underneath me. I later found out who had done it and they it was their cup and I, I, I just kind of, I guess, helped it along to its complete brokenness. But that is how many of us are in our lives, those in the world. And you're the, the truth is, even as those who are part of Jesus' kingdom in our brokenness, he is repairing us more and more. The Bible says in the knowledge of the image of God, we are being repaired and we're reflecting God more and we're taking on more and more the character of Christ being conformed more and more to his image. And so we are broken, but we are in this process of being repaired. And we can halt that process. We can slow that process by rejecting that chief cornerstone, that remedy, that truth. You know, there was, when I was a a little kid, I don't know, six, seven, eight, you know me, I've shared enough stories for you to know this, that I was in fights with my brothers all the time. See, there was my brother and my sister. They were the two oldest. And then there was a gap between us four youngest. And there was uh, five years between us four kids, from my brother Dan to my younger brother Chris. I was number five in that line of six kids. And so being younger, I had to hold my own. I was a scrappy, little, scrawny kid And I got in fights with my brother, Rob, the guy nicknamed the Hulk. And he was huge. And I would get in fights with him. And no lie, if you've seen the movie Princess Bride, it was Wesley fighting the giant. That was me fighting my brother. Ah, ah. And my brother, you know, come on, Rob, do something. I want you to feel good about yourself, you know. And I'm fighting, doing what I can. And But there would be times in which he would tick me off, right? And, you know, when you get a little ticked off, what do you do? You shove the person, right? And you push them. Except it didn't happen that way. I didn't move my brother. I pushed him. I tried to push him. Oh, yeah. But I would push, and the very pushing pushed me back. And he would walk closer, and I would push him, and I would be the one to get moved. And I'd push him again, and I would be the one to get pushed back. And see, this is a picture of what the world is doing with Jesus. They are pushing against the very one who is the answer, and he is not moving. The truth is not moving. The only one moving in this is this broken person who is alienating himself from the answer. And we keep pushing against God, and trust me, church, he is not moving. We are the ones moving until finally our back is up against the wall and we're trapped. And there was no, for me, there was no way out. At that point, I started apologizing, right? And that's exactly what God is doing in the world today. He is the answer. He's the answer. 
Let me ask that question that my atheist friend asked me again. Why would a loving God allow this coronavirus pandemic? And then, why is he not stepping in to remedy it? Now, I don't have a clear answer for why God is choosing not to remedy it, but please understand this, that God is even using our brokenness and the result of that brokenness, which I'm saying is this coronavirus, it's just one of um, many symptoms of our brokenness and the brokenness in this world. And he is using that ultimately to pull and draw people to him. And I, I told him this. I said, you know, God created the world perfect. Deuteronomy 32, the works of his hands are perfect, referring to creation. In Genesis 1, he says, when God created all things, and he created man on the sixth day, he said, it's very good. God created a very good, perfect world and church, we were the ones who screwed it up. We were the ones that rebelled. We were the ones who sinned. We were the ones pushing against God, against the truth. We wanted to break down the walls. We were the ones who, that was our inheritance. And we wanted to push God, the owner of that vineyard, out. That's in essence what Adam did. And we inherited that same stain, that same inclination of rebellion in our own hearts. We, in our sin, we broke this world. But you know what? Though it's not God's fault and it truly is ours, God did step into my brokenness and our broken world. He could have just turned his back and said, look, reap what you sow. You deserve all of this brokenness, this crushing to powder. You deserve all of it. And he would be right. But you know what, church? That's not what God did. He didn't just leave us there. He stepped into my world, my brokenness, your brokenness. In the person of Jesus, the stone the builders rejected, the son, the heir, the heir stepped into my situation. He became the death, the sin. He became that for me. He took on that punishment that I deserved. He became my answer. The antidote for what's killing me. And I just want to encourage you this morning. If you find that you are pushing up against the truth, Understand this, that truth is moving nowhere. The more you push up against it, the more you move. And you know what? God's going to let you do that. He's going to let you do that until your back is up against the proverbial wall and you have no place else to go but beg for mercy and apologize and get things right. Because if not, in my shoes, I would become pulverized right there. Yes, I would. And I knew it. I knew I was going to get a beating that I would regret, and so I would make things right. 
Can I just encourage you that if you are pushing against the truth, against God himself, against the answer, open your heart. Because the stone the builders rejected has become that chief cornerstone. He's become the answer for all of our brokenness. Stop tearing down the walls of the vineyard. They're there. And Jesus invites all as he is the door, the gate, to come in through him. Don't push him away. Embrace him. Will you stand with me? Father, I ask that you would speak to our hearts through your truth this morning, that we would not be those who are fighting against you, but that your truth would soften our hearts and that your truth would open our eyes. Even as believers, God, we can push against you. Forgive us for this, God. Thank you, Lord, that you have sent your son and that he is the remedy that we desperately need. He is the answer to all of these questions and he is my only hope. And so, Father, I ask, with my back up against the wall, humble me, God. Don't allow me to fight you anymore. May out of the depth of my crushedness, my brokenness, cry out to you to bring repair, to bring restoration to that which is broken. Please, God. Be gracious to us. Thank you, Father, that you sent your Son into my world of brokenness to show me the way to pay the price that I couldn't pay for my sin, to become the way, the truth, and the light, to become, to be that answer. And I just ask you, Father, humble our hearts that we stop fighting you and pushing away the very thing that would heal my heart. Amen to me. Would you do this, Father? Out of your abundant grace, in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Amen.